Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Elix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're thrilled today to welcome Professor George Church, a prolific scientist, synthetic biology pioneer, and serial biotech entrepreneur to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. Uh, to help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague Eric Dye and special guest host Alexander Titus of Bioeconomy XYZ. Titus, can you give our listeners a bit of background on yourself and Bioeconomy XYZ? Yeah, thanks, Jazz. Um, how's it going, everyone? So Alexander Titus, it's uh, great to be here. I'm a genomic data scientist by training that spent a lot of time really excited about science communication and founded Bioeconomy XYZ at the beginning of the pandemic because I thought that more people needed to be able to talk about cool stuff, uh, whether it's in verbal or written form. Um, so got connected up with Jazz and have been working to have cool conversations about science ever since. So it's great to be here. Fantastic. Thanks again for joining us. And to kick things off, George, can you share a brief intro with us? Yeah, so I'm George Church, professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School and uh, also at MIT. And I work on technology development for reading, writing, and editing DNA and pretty much anything you can make with DNA, ranging from um, inorganic material to organs and ecosystems. Thanks, George. And rewinding the clock, can you tell us a bit about your personal journey? Uh, where did it all start? And can you take us to where you are now? Oh, well, I don't know. It, it was, I, I started in, in Florida where I was not getting much of a science education. In fact, I didn't, there were no role models. Uh, nobody that I knew was a scientist or engineer. Um, but I was inspired both by the natural environment, beautiful uh, kind of swamp lands and m mud and and, uh, and woods uh, um, out in the out near our house or behind our house, and uh, and also at the one end, so at the very natural end, and at the unnatural end, um, uh, the physicians. Uh, accoutrements of my father who, would, uh, who was a uh, internal medicine uh, kind of family doctor who would do house calls. So putting all that together uh, along with interest in computers, um, I wanted to, to, to find a way to, to integrate it and uh, that led to the, my first project that really stuck uh, was uh, w was x-ray crystallography of um, uh, you know a, a, a crucial kind of central molecule which is transfer RNA it's a part of the protein synthesis apparatus that's present in all organisms highly conserved and that really um, got me and it was uh, one of the few fields that was had serious amount of computing and, and um, automation. And I wanted to take what I learned from that and apply it to all the 
other parts of biology and chemistry which were, which were lacking in the computing and automation. And, um, and so I went on to, to apply it to genomics and then proteomics and then RNA and then functional genomics, systems biology, and then synthetic biology. And throughout that journey, George, kind of what's been your North Star, the, the common thread tying everything together, if you will? Well, I would say um, there are a few, few threads. Uh, there's a technical thread, which is sort of the secret sauce, the, um, the, the most, the biggest superpower, which I think is molecular multiplexing. This was something that that really didn't uh, didn't exist, um, uh, or and even after I made it exist, uh, gave it a name and and started developing applications for it. Um, I still think people take it for granted. It's it's uh, it's behind the scenes. So that's that's one thread. Uh, probably another thread that's been pretty constant is this transfer RNA molecule that 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 and and the way of thinking about 3D structures that, that came from this crystallography that I did on transfer RNA starting around 1973 when I was still a teenager. Um, I'm still working on tRNA and the genetic code and um, in all the ways that you can now apply that um, to, um, to making things as diverse as non-standard amino acids, biocontainment, and and organisms resistant to all viruses. And as we think, George, kind of one question we like to ask our guests comes from Dennis Gaber, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. Uh, he says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you tell us what does inventing the future mean to you? Yeah, I have. I ascribe to a, a, a small variation on that, which is, you know, the best way to predict the future is to uh, make it uh, uh, and s to to be engaged with the possibilities. There, are, I, th I think we're all exposed to some of the possibilities, but some um, re reject them. They see they see them as unlikely, um, inconvenient. Uh, terribly expensive, terribly long, far, far away, and so on. Impossible is, is, is often the simplifying term. Um, and so what I try to encourage in my group is, is to try to don't, don't, don't rush to judgment. Don't quickly throw it in the trash. Maybe if it looks hard to do, put it up on the wall for constant reflection and and admiring the challenge rather than dismissing it, and and then one day it'll click how you know what some some new thing that will make it uh, enable you to go down that that path. Two 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 recent inventions that maybe you invented both of them will collide and make a third one that's even cooler. And to dive into that a bit more, I'll pass it off to my colleague Eric Dye to talk about reading and writing the genome. Thanks, Chas. George, a striking aspect of your work is the intense focus, uh, really singular focus you have in a lot of ways on how to read, write, and edit genomic code. 
Um, so let's start first with this topic of reading the genome. Um, you helped conceive and initiate the Human Genome Project in 1984 and the Personal Genome Project in 2005. Uh, can you please share with us what the original vision behind this work might, uh, was? Well, even before 1984, uh, going back to 1973, when I was just starting on transfer RNA, um, we had the three-dimensional, we quickly had the three-dimensional structure and, the, and I was writing the computer code for refining that, you know, making the more precise 3D coordinates. And that code that I wrote was in use for about three decades, which is a pretty long time for computer code. And uh, w one of the things that I wanted to do with the three-dimensional coordinates is to see if all the other tRNAs in the world um, might have the, might ha be able to use those 3D coordinates. So we can, you know, with great effort, we got one set, uh, one three-dimensional structure. Um, maybe, but it seemed like the sequencing, the, the 1D structures were flying in uh, at a, a faster clip and could we fold them up? And, and, and I, I wrote another set of code for folding up all these molecules and they all convincingly folded up into the same structure. And I thought that was really cool and thought that, well, maybe we can just sequence everything, all the, all the DNA and RNA on the planet and fold them up and, and translate them into protein because the genetic code was a very simple algorithm going from DNA, or at least we thought at the time. This was before RNA splicing, RNA editing, and the rest. Um, so that was the, the naive, you know, teenage naivete of, oh, isn't this going to be easy? And then, and then it went to a realization that, wow, there's six billion base pairs per person and there's somewhere between, you know, four and eight billion people um, as time went by. Um, that's a lot of base pairs just for humans and then there are lots of other um, interesting organisms uh, which we're now, sometimes call it bioprospecting or mining. Um, so then it, so it went from naively obvious to totally non-obvious to, again, surprising how fast it, um, it, it became possible thanks to the, an exponential that was probably even faster than the remarkable exponential of Moore's Law. And so I was just lucky that I had that naivete at the beginning and that the, for the very brief moment of, of uh, you know, noticing that it was a hard problem, it, it immediately transitioned to an easy problem again. And we're well on our way to, to sequencing the biosphere, starting, starting with a lot of attention to, to humans. So that's, that's 73 to 84. And then 84 to say 204, to, sorry, 2004 was um, the Genome Project, which was disappointing to me. It was, uh, not enough emphasis on technology development to bring down the price. Um, most, of the technology, most of the technology was very incremental during that period of time, and it was really just spending, you know, scaling up and spending money. And as soon as the project was over, um, the, the very next, you know, large genome that was done was done by a whole new set of methods, um, which we had been working on in the Skunk Works because technology development was not considered uh, acceptable until after the first genome was done. So, 
that was next generation sequencing, which I think is really where we are today, multi molecular multiplexing and next gen fluorescent sequencing. That, that's really fascinating. And I think a common thread that I see in a lot of this work is this idea of exploring the holy grail of biological code and function, which is um, this relationship, exploring this relationship, the black box between structure and function of code and application. And so my question is, um, you know, how is this original vision of, of defining what that relationship is changed over time or, or has it changed at all? Um, it's, it, it has changed a little bit. I mean, the, one of the, we, sometimes we joke that, that, that we have all this alien technology, uh, alien capabilities that looks like technology lying around in the genomes of, of all the microorganisms and, and organisms in general. And it didn't come with an instruction manual, but in a way it came with something even better than an instruction manual, which is a fairly modular uh, ability to um, change it. So you can take the code that you don't understand, change something, see what happens, and you can now do it in, in big designed libraries. So it's not just random changes, you can now take what, what you see as natural variation in the world, which is you can think of as a um, fairly thorough uh, experiment, a set of experiments that have the appearance of being engineering by trial and error. We, we can inherit that background and then we can do our own accelerated evolution um, and, and get big data sets that we can use for machine learning and so forth. So that connection of structure with function has gone into overdrive, um, especially over the last, you know, decade. Thank you for sharing. And um, another thing you touched on was the importance of uh, platform, technological platform development in the exploration of, of this topic of reading the genome. And you've written before on relatively unexplored facets of DNA sequencing, like uh, the 100% complete sequencing of the genome, uh, population scale sequencing, and real-time in situ nucleic acid monitoring. Um, so can you speak to us uh, what the next frontier of DNA sequencing, DNA reading looks like, and uh, what the associated implications might be? Well, I think uh, a big part of this is bringing it to every home. Um, I mean, it's one thing to have, when I started, it was something barely accessible to any biologist or chemist. Um, and then it kind of grew to the point where it is now, where almost anybody who's a scientist has access to it and has to, the next transition is to uh, all the people of the world. And there are very few technologies that are really truly equitably distributed um, worldwide. Uh, a lot of them have, a lot of the more successful ones have to do with eliminating pathogens, making them extinct. Um, and that doesn't cost us any money going forward. Um, and in some cases, it's relatively inexpensive even to get there in the first place, but certainly after you've the extinction is, is quite a bit, bit better. Now, to get um, se sequencing into everybody's home, one possibility is the is a tr highly portable one. You know, if you, a lot of cell phones have multiple cameras on them. Hopefully, someday soon they'll have multiple chemical sensors that will allow us to either do sampling or targeted sequencing or 
uh, whole variety of, of possibility monitoring our food, air, and water. Um, and that will allow us to do bi what I call bio-weather mapping. So it's like weather map we're engaged in. It's, it's, it's some combination of mission critical and entertainment where we check on a regular basis you know the the conditions that could affect our health if we fall down say um, or could just affect our convenience and the same thing should be we should be at least as as entertained and diligently cautious about the bioweather map uh, both on a local scale and on a global scale but these are these are two of the ways that we can bring this revolution to everyone, um, not just infectious disease, but inherited disease. There's probably trillions of dollars that can be saved um, on those two categories through preventative medicine long before you need a, a, a therapy, a cure. Um, yeah, that's, that's part of where we're going. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. Um, so I'd, I'd love to dive a little next into writing the genome, this other topic of discussion. And uh, you published a seminal piece of work in 1997 on generating precise deletions and insertions in the genome of wild type E. coli. And in the time since, you've pioneered uh, really a dizzying array of methods in single and multiplexed genome engineering and microbes, plant and mammalian cells. Um, so can you please share for us what the original vision behind this work in genome engineering was? Right. Well, even before the 1997, uh, part of my mo motivation for going uh, to Gail Martin's lab as a postdoctoral fellow was to was to develop um, methods for homologous recombination in stem cells. Uh, thankfully, Smithies and Mario Capecci uh, beat me to it. Uh, but I, I felt that we needed. Uh, even after their tremendous contributions, I felt we were still lacking some uh, key technologies to do um, human stem cells properly. They did mouse stem cells, but we also needed um, transcriptomics, ideally what's now called single cell or, or in situ transcriptomics, so we could see the, the, the differentiation um, ways of doing not just reading the differentiated states, but writing them as well, uh, being able to epigenetically nudge cells along uh, the differentiation pathways. And, um, and we needed much better uh, writing and editing tools. So all those things were lacking in 1984 when I was a uh, postdoc. Um, by 1997, we had them working, most of them working pretty well in uh, prokaryotes, and um, some of them work spectacularly. They're actually easier and better than CRISPR. They made precise edits. They didn't require uh, DNA, RNA, and protein to make precise edits. They just required um, exogenous DNA. Everything else was endogenous. Um, and it's only, you know, uh, 20 years later that we have it working uh, in a way that looks like it might be um, applicable to all organisms. Um, yeah, that's that's uh, truly exciting. And and I, I wonder if you could share, please, what how you think this vision of genome engineering has evolved over time, but more importantly, what it looks like going forward. What does the future of genome engineering look like for humanity? Right, so uh, genome engineering, 
genome engineering, along with a lot of other um, therapies, uh, is expensive and getting more expensive in contrast to diagnostics and DNA sequencing, which, have, which we've helped drop by 20 million fold. That hasn't happened yet with therapies, but never say never, it, 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 it could. And, and some of the ways that we're trying to do that is by uh, aiming it at um, cases where either we can bring down the R&D costs, the clinical trial costs, for example, in veterinary applications, uh, so we can get used to doing things at scale uh, inexpensively, or by having bigger markets, the fixed R&D and clinical uh, trial uh, costs can be amortized over a much larger set of people that benefit, for example, in aging reversal since 90% since, since of us are going to die from diseases of aging. Um, so that's one thing, that's one future is bringing down the cost and improving the quality of, of the uh, human health. But it has other applications um, in, um, in, for example, in agriculture, in um, uh, plants and animals, even something hybrid in between agriculture and, and medicine is uh, producing uh, animals that can be organ donors, um, producing even enhanced organs, organs that are better than human organs, better in terms of uh, immune tolerance, pathogen resistance, um, cancer resistance, maybe even uh, radiation and, and cryopreservation resistance. Um, so that so that we can have, uh, we may come to the ironic point where our engineered organs are, are better than uh, than our original ones, and there might be a temptation to to uh, upgrade. So there's going to be a, a, a lot of a, a growing amount uh, of examples of enhancement, and enhancement is not something new. I mean, certainly we're all superhuman relative to our ancestors, and that we have almost no fear of dozens of uh, infectious diseases. Not yet all infectious diseases, but many uh, of them that used to plague our ancestors do not plague us. This is truly uh, superhuman, um, at least from their perspective. But there's, uh, going forward, most of the superpowers will be from physics and chemistry, not, not necessarily biology. Like, if we want to be, you know, strong and move quickly, then we're going to, you know, hop in a jet, not not run faster. Um, but uh, probably the thing that the things that will be biological enhancements will be uh, uh, aging um, more gracefully or, or aging reversal better yet so that we're youthful, healthy um, rather than spending a huge amount of our time and money at, a, at an age where we should be the most productive in our lifetime, um, changing that so that we, we actually can achieve some of that um, health and health and productivity. Um, so, so I think those are some of the things that, that I see coming. Excellent, and what a, what a fantastic vision of the future. Um, I'd love to pass it on to my co-host, uh, Titus, at this point. Yeah, George, through all of your approach to science and technology, you have become one of, if not the most prolific entrepreneurial biology labs in the world. How do you 
how do you do that? And like, what's your approach to cultivating your lab and your mentees to, to take on these kind of big challenging problems and go out in the world and try to solve them? Well, one, one of the uh, tricks is uh, that we, we try to pick problems that look hard um, but are actually easy, uh, where a lot of people are scared off or discouraged or, or at least leave the field uh, or, or they feel that it's useless. Any of those things is enough to, to uh, so that we get the luxury of being able to work um, by ourselves for a while um, with um, and do slightly more rigorous science than when you're trying to rush, rush out a paper in competition. I mean, this is certainly the case for molecular multiplexing for the big DNA libraries that we pioneered in 2002, made from chips rather than um, one at a time from tedious synthesis on columns. Uh, you can make millions of oligos simultaneously on chips and then rescue them. Um, so, so that, that's one thing is is developing an intuition for for neglected pro problems that are really overripe. Uh, uh, impactful but not as hard as they look. The second one is creating a culture where failure is an option. So the, the, the motto at Apollo, you know, NASA was failure is not an option. Uh, I, I encourage everybody to consider the possibility that if you fail a million times in a day and get one success, that's actually better than kind of carefully planning your perfect um, experiment takes a decade to plan and it, and it kind of works out um, because the end result even though we both of them worked one of them yeah, you um, considered a lot more um, empirical uh, trial and error so Edison said that he wasn't quite as proud of the one light bulb that worked as the 999 that didn't work that trial and error really results in a better product and that's what libraries and multiplexing are all about, is allowing or enabling you to try a lot of things and fail um, millions of times for each success. So, so that's number two. And, and the, the list goes on. I mean, it's, it's, it's about encouraging people to be nice. So that's one of our criteria for entry into the lab. And, and I think it's a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, a lot of the alumni come back and nurture their younger um, siblings and treat them the way a caring sibling would. And I think uh, that creates the kind of confidence that, every, that everybody needs. Um, and then finally, I mean, I could go on, but another example is uh, um, you want to have you want to protect people from actual failure. So you want to have one project, which is, you know, dreamy. You know, you know the home run, knock it out of the park, and but then you want to have a second project that, that they can latch onto if if the, they can't connect on the first one. But you don't want that second one to to be easy because it's mediocre. You want it to be easy because it's mature. So it's. It was one of these things that did hit it out of the park and sort of it, at the last uh, stage of it, um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done to make it polished and ready and publication and, and getting it 
uh, out to the people. So you can, you can have two projects, one of which is your dream, and the other one is somebody else's dream that's near, near, the, near the end game. Well, I would imagine that with the amount of kind of leading edge, pushing the limits of science and technology, your lab has an op ample opportunity to fail gracefully and learn from that. But what it, like, how did you develop this approach? What does it mean to you when you're trying to encounter and overcome failure on your way to what sounds like change the world, right? You've done such amazing science. This approach couldn't have come out of nowhere. So how did you get to this point? And where did this mindset come from? Um, well, I would say I was rather good at failing. Uh, so I was trying to learn lemons in the lemonade. Uh, I, I uh, had to repeat ninth grade. I had to repeat a couple of years of graduate school. Um, my postdoc, I got zero papers uh, out of my postdoc, but still had to get a job. Uh, and uh, and when I came up for tenure, I lost my major source of funding. So, you know, these are all, I had so many, I think what happened is some of my colleagues had a mixed blessing of, of having kind of a meteoric career without any speed bumps. Uh, mine was much more like a roller coaster and, uh, and, uh, and therefore I was, I think, less fearful of or less um, uh, mo more willing to, 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 to go down pathways that could result in failure, temporary failure. Um, so I think, you know, care for what you wish for. If you get, if you get, uh, uh, you know, cushy life with, with nothing going wrong and early retirement and all that, your, your brain will rot. Uh, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it's 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 easy for those of us who are um, not you to look at you and think of infallibility, but I, I like the idea of choosing to fail gracefully and, and pushing through that as a way to succeed. That is um, that's motivating for for all of us. For as a as a PI, and when you're looking at commercializing these technologies, which we know that startups fail regularly. So it's another set of opportunities to fail gracefully and succeed in some. How do you find the areas where you think something is ready to take that step to, to try to commercialize the science you're working on? Well, our lab is um, a, a, an odd hybrid of uh, basic science and um, Technol extreme technology development, meaning not factors of two, but factors of you know, uh, you know, ten to the sixth, and um, and then the third category is, is things that that will achieve positive social change uh, and equitable um, cost structures, and those those three it used to be those were three completely different vocational pathways. You couldn't do basic science and applied. You couldn't do applied and socially conscious. It was just, you just had to choose. But as time went by, partially thanks to the exponential technologies that happened to surround my field, uh, the fields that I chose, um, we found that we could and should. And so every, uh, every idea gets examined under that uh, stringent 
trio of, of considerations. Um, and I think that inspires us, it inspires um, uh, us to be able to examine each and say, okay, now we had all three of these from the beginning, but now it's mature enough that we're getting a lot of inquiries, it's probably time to, um, to launch it. Don't want to do it prematurely, but, but, you, but we get, after a, uh, a few, we get kind of a collective consciousness of when it's, when it's ready. And uh, one hint that it's ready is when people are asking for it. Uh, sometimes uh, you can see it even a little bit earlier than that. Um, when you, uh, the team, uh, wishes, says, I wish that I had this technology you know, in the real world. So that's, you know, we're kind of your own marketing team um, asking yourself whether you would like to have it. Well, my last question before I hand it back to Chaz is, do you have any advice for PhD students and postdocs who are interested in entrepreneurship and commercializing kind of science and technology? How do you advise your, your people in your lab to think about it and go forth? Um, well, uh, to be uh, careful, uh, there, there's a kind of a, a, you know, a winner's dilemma, which is, it, there's a limit to how much you can learn by looking at exceptional cases, the, the extreme values on the bell curves. They don't, the people out there don't necessarily know how they got there, and I hope I haven't misrepresented my speculation as knowing how to get there. Um, but you, uh, uh, if you, uh, and, and there's, a, there's also a, another strange ascertainment bias, which is there, uh, there's a positive feedback loop. If you get a high concentration of people, uh, then that will attract more people just like that. And there is something to be said for spreading the wealth out evenly and uh, equally, but there's also something to be said for creating centers of excellence and, and, and uh, co high concentrations of people that think similarly <clears throat> exotic thoughts. Um, so look for the look for those centers of excellence, and and uh, you, I mean it's it's much harder to build one from scratch than to notice that you're in the midst of one and, and build it up. Uh, keep build it. Keep keep that positive feedback loop going. That's great. I appreciate that. I've always been. It's always been exciting and fascinating to watch all the cool stuff coming out of your lab. Um, I'm going to hand it back over to Chaz, but I appreciate all your thoughts. Thank you. George, to dive in a little bit deeper here, um, in some of the companies you founded, it's been numerous uh, by most standards and uh, exciting the opportunities that you've explored here. Uh, Dino Therapeutics, Eugenesis, 64X, Nebula, Helix Nano, Rejuvenate Bio, amongst many others, name a few. We'd love to dive a little bit deeper here uh, in a couple of these spin-outs. Uh, eGenesis is applying gene editing and genome engineering to develop safe and effective human organ tissue and cell transplants. They've made headlines recently, raising over 250 million for their science fiction turned reality approach designing pig-to-human xenotransplants. Can you tell us about the journey of eGenesis from conception to research to spin-out? Uh, sure. Uh, so, 
When we, uh, we were working on a variety of ways of doing genome editing, as you mentioned from 1997 onward, um, and it, we were kind of addicted to not just editing one gene at a time, which is kind of the, the way of gene therapy, uh, one gene at a time, one broken gene, one, one fix. Um, we like the idea of multiplex editing, of things that, where you need multiple edits. And so when we were publishing on genome editing, um, we would get inquiries from, from the um, xenotransplantation community, which they had been working diligently on this technology for 20 years before they started contacting us. And I think they could recognize at a distance that their problem, which they had hoped for 20 years could be solved by a single gene or couple of genes probably needed a lot lot more edits than that, maybe as many as 30 or 40. And so they, they, they invited us, actually uh, three groups invited us within a few weeks of each other independently. And, and we started looking at it, Luhan Yang uh, who, uh, and I, she had been a graduate student and a postdoctoral fellow in my lab. And, uh, and Luhan built up a, a team within my lab, about nine people that worked with closely with her. With, clearly, she was the, the leader. And, uh, and it became evident that there were things that could be done. The first thing we did was, was uh, eliminating the viruses, which I had uh, the endogenous retroviruses, which were kind of repetitive elements in the genome. And that's one of these classic things that looks hard, but it was actually much easier than we thought. And uh, I had been hoping to do this for years before, but, but I could never convince anybody to knock these out in mice. But when it came to pigs, where the FDA was freaking out with, with these uh, um, um, endogenous viruses possibly infecting immune-suppressed uh, uh, organ recipients. So anyway, we, we knocked out 62 at once and said, wow, that was not too bad. And so we went on to do 42 changes, mo most of them being highly crafted and, and uh, you know, involving the immune system and clotting and coagulation and so forth. It was basically the complete wish list of everybody in the field that had accumulated over 20 years. And, and now we have what we call pig version 3.0, and there's about 2,000 of them running around on the planet, last time I checked, and, uh, and they're in preclinical trials for primate testing, and it's looking quite, quite good. So what does the world look like when uh, eGenesis realizes its, its full potential? Can you help paint the picture for us? Well, I think it, it's better than, right now we have a, a crisis in every country of, of the world um, where there's not enough transplant donors. In fact, there's whole categories of transplantation and recipients that are excluded. Uh, it's kind of like the death panels that sometimes hear about, where you just basically, you just don't even consider pe people with certain pre-existing conditions or certain ages and so forth that you would if there were an abundance of organs. Secondly, a lot of organs are rejected because just at the last minute, you've got the patient prepped for surgery and the organ comes in and it's, it's not quite healthy enough. So you cancel the whole transplant. Um, there's also issues of uh, infectious disease. Some, uh, some, some uh, infectious diseases we don't have good enough 
diagnostics or they're not used. And so there is the risk of you know, hepatitis, HIV, and so forth. Ideally, in most cases, that's not, a, that's not an issue. But, um, but you know, uh, uh, we, can, we can make organs that are better than the organs um, that we would get from a human being. They're, they're not only available when you want it, where you want it, and in, and in good shape, but they can be resistant to uh, uh, pathogens and to senescence and to cancer and, and much more immune tolerated. Uh, so in principle, you can get something that's like getting a, an organ transplant from an identical twin or from yourself. Um, that's where we're hopefully going with all this technology. And to think about kind of your collective portfolio of startups, George, I'd be curious if you put the VC hat on here for a moment. Uh, how do you think about portfolio theory and in, in, in spreading scientific risk? Um, well, in terms of spreading risk, I would say I am personally over-invested in biotech. And in fact, my investment advisors tell me this on a regular basis. And, uh, but it's, it's my passion, and it's, it's where, where we're best at inventing. Um, that said, within biotech, we're all over the place, and that's partly because uh, the sorts of technology we work on are broad ones. We're not inventing a particular new titanium alloy that can be used in a particular kind of joint, uh, you know, like a, a knee. Um, we're, we're doing something like sequencing, which can be applied to not just biology and medicine, but, but uh, making inorganic material, making um, data storage, uh, you know, competing with disk drives and things like that. So these are broad um, uh, capabilities, and, and hence we get drawn into some of the nooks and crannies over this wide landscape uh, um, and and it has, it cre accidentally creates a, a, a broad and hopefully safer portfolio. Uh, I, I've heard whispers that you launched uh, in 2019 or were involved with over 100 companies. Uh, is, is this true? And kind of roughly how many companies no, uh, are, are spun out of your lab as you give Probably <laughs> over my entire lifetime, I've been involved in some way, meaning there's been some papers legal papers drawn up for about 100. Um, there was a 24-month period where we, where I was co-founder in 24 startups. That was pre-COVID. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it, it's a very gratifying to be involved in the lives, uh, you know, ongoing with uh, students and postdoctoral fellows um, that, you know, I saw grow from... Um, not knowing much about the field that they wanted to know a lot about to being the, the leaders in those, those fields. Uh, and so um, it's probably, you know, one of our great, most satisfying aspects of this is the, is the people, not just the technology and, and the applications. And, and as you think about kind of helping these students form these new ventures, uh, do you have a standard process, or is there kind of a different way for doing each two venture? How, how do you think about efficiency gains, I guess, is maybe a better way to say it. 
Uh, there's some processes that are fairly standard, par partly because their standardization at Harvard and MIT and the Wyss Institute. Um, there's a lot that's idiosyncratic, uh, partly because the, uh, thankfully these are acts of high creativity and, art, and, and they're sort of artisanal and artistic. Um, so they, they work, we paint within the legal boundaries and the, and the um, uh, conflict of interest rules and the ethics and the safety rules of the FDA. But except for those, those boundary conditions within it, there's a lot of room for creativity, um, knowing that intuition of knowing what's low-hanging fruit that everybody else thinks is up at the top of the tree and the intuition for um, you know, what will sell and what won't, um, um, what combinations of technologies are, um, you, know, you can mix on your palette uh, to create beautiful new, new colors. And as you think, George, come about uh, your lab and the, the great work of, that you've done in producing so many companies, um, I imagine you've mentored quite a few folks over the years uh, what, what advice would you give to rising star professors looking to entrepreneurialize your labs? Um, well, we've had about 300 uh, people go through my lab. Uh, many of them came in with entrepreneurial spirit. Many of them came in with multidisciplinary, uh, meaning they knew two pretty different disciplines already. And I, I, you know, I think our lab is benefited from multidisciplinarity. It's, it's hard to create a multidisciplinary lab from disciplinarians uh, alone, from, from you know, the highly um, specialized, um, typical um, kind of education that a lot of people are channeled into. Uh, it's hard to get those people to talk to each other, um, while people that have learned multiple uh, languages uh, have an easier time learning yet another one. And, and so two people sitting next to each other in, uh, in a, on a bench or so forth have a higher chance of, of, of finding overlap if they have already um, wrapped their head around some um, uh, multiple disciplines or polymaths. So, I, so that's one bit of advice is uh, at least build part of your team from Multidisciplinary. It doesn't have to be entirely that way, but it, it helps. And that means that you yourself have to have a pretty extreme level of curiosity about many different things, uh, you know, ranging from, you know, law, ethics, um, um, business, and of course, science and engineering. I'll, I'll pass it off to uh, Titus and talk about the, the grand challenges of life sciences. You know, we, we absolutely believe that the key to change in the world starts with finding the right problem to solve. But, I mean, you've tackled so many over the last number of decades of your career. What do you think the, the grand challenges in the life science are over the next two decades, next 20 years? Well, there's some that, uh, that most, of them, most of the key ones are the ones that people find easy to dismiss. Uh, there's a, it's, it's funny, it's almost a real inverse relationship. So people might dismiss 
um, uh, global warming uh, or climate change, or, or uh, because, or they might say, oh, it's all about um, you know, electric cars and changing uh, your light bulbs from tungsten to LED. But, but that misses the point that is that most of those impact 10 gigatons per year, while there's about 1,400 gigatons, you know, the elephant that people aren't looking at, which is, you know, in um, the oceans and the Arctic and, um, and, and where we really need to sequester carbon. It's not sufficient to slow down this steady increase in carbon because it's still gradually going place where we don't want to be. In fact, we're already beyond the point where we want to be. We want to be reversing. So not enough emphasis on reversal and biology and even natural biology could play a huge role. So that's why we're in, you know, investing our time and creativity into ways that we can engineer the uh, big ecosystems without many people in them, not agriculture, not cities, but the big ecosystems like the Arctic oceans and the Arctic uh, land masses. Um, that's an example of, of um, you know, future issues. The bioweather map uh, is clearly critical. We, we should have had um, enthusiasm, both artistic um, entertainment and, um, and, and the low-cost know-how that enables a bioweather map to be at, at least on a par with weather weather map. If we had had that in place before uh, COVID-19, we might have saved ourselves $16 trillion. Um, we need to get make it easy for people to deal with the inconvenient. Generally speaking, if something is less than 1% risk and at all inconvenient whatsoever, have, um, then people won't do it. They won't do seat belts, you know, they were, at least they wouldn't for a while, they wouldn't give up smoking, they wouldn't uh, eat well, eat sugar, you know, drink sugary drinks to excess. Um, we need to, uh, that, that's happening now with inherited diseases and carbon sequestration, and we just need to make it easy. If it sounds like belt tightening, it, it's going to get, and there are plenty of, it's going to get resisted, and there are plenty of win-win um, alternatives that we need to, to look to because biotechnology is the fastest moving technology. It's sometimes 10 times faster than, than the electronics. It's, a, it's electronics ancestry. Um, it is so fast uh, that, um, that it, and, it, and it's also high quality. It, it's really the only technology, it's nanotechnology that works, bio-nanotechnology, and it's you can get, do atomic engineering, meaning uh, atomic precision, but at scale. So you can have an atomically precise um, structure that covers, you know, square kilometers um, almost for free because of sunlight and, and rain. So those are some of the things that, that, that we should be looking out for. You've also mentioned a few times about aging and uh, our ability to, to help combat that kind of processy. And we know that the idea of longevity escape philosophy is, is that theoretical point where we have the ability to, ex 
extend life. We have life extending advancements that are happening faster than, than we age. But to, I mean, that seems like a, a major hurdle. What what are the challenges and the the kind of steps we need to get there to, before we can get to this, you know, proverbial holy grail, if you will? Well, again, it's it's very easy to be dismissive or to to, to be pessimistic. Uh, there's a difference between being cautious and being pessimistic. In this case, for almost 170 years, we've had this steady increase, which is not escape velocity, but it is an improvement where we about every four years we take uh, we add a year <clears throat> to our lives um, it has to be one year per year um, and you might say well if it's been that steady for that many years it can't change slope but of course there's absolutely no theory for why it can't change slope the same thing went for moore's law is that we were getting a you know a doubling about every two years and so it can't change slope but um, but it can get, can even get better or worse and in the case of DNA technology, it, it went from something where it was improving about doubling every two years to doubling every few months. Uh, and that, um, you know, these sorts of exponentials are not indefinitely uh, capable, but sometimes they're capable for seven orders of magnitude, eight, nine, maybe 10 orders of magnitude, because we're increasing the molecular multiplexing and scaling down to the, uh, you know, molecular scale rather than merely three nanometers where we're dealing with things where a fraction of a nanometer matters fraction uh, you know 0.02 nanometers matters so um, that that's that's why that this is uh, the way it is well, with all the, the progress made in biotech, and I've had lots of conversations with many people about the opportunities, but then a lot of people focus a lot on the risks that come with biotech. So what what role does bioethics play into the progress of biotech? And how do we think about kind of biosecurity into biodefense as well as we move these technologies forward? Um, well, uh, so uh, safety and uh, and uh, ethics, uh, equitable distribution is something that goes beyond safety, uh, making sure that everybody has access to the technology. Uh, long-term safety, so a lot of the safety considerations are of necessity. It's hard to do long-term experiments, so, so you, you have to have a way of constantly reevaluating things over long periods of time. For example, you know, over a 70-year period, we reevaluated the, you know, the removal of wolves from Yellowstone. Um, you know, a few drugs are pulled off the market during what's called phase four, which is out when it's out in the market. But as long as we as long as we keep that flexibility and that dedication, we need to shore up and, and support morally and financially um, agencies like the USDA, the EPA and the FDA, EMA um, that protect our environment and our um, and our health. Uh, they're, I think, are they're not uh, our enemies. They're, they're our friends. They're help. They're not slowing us down. They're helping us um, get past uh, the the negatives um, calmly and smoothly. And um, as you know, some of my colleagues are are uh, concerned or or angry, uh, frustrated with um, critique uh, or their or with. Uh, 
that the media and the movies and books portraying scientists in a less than positive light. I think this is healthy. I don't. I don't. I don't that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing that we have Frankenstein and Gattaca and Jurassic Park. These by putting these sometimes unlikely scenarios in our face, we imagine other scenarios and we don't have to live through them. So not only do we not have to repeat history that we're ignorant of, we don't even have to experience it in the first time if we can imagine it. So I think this is very healthy to have these discussions way in advance and in many cases um, in advance of it not happening. Um, you know, the, the, some of the greatest unsung heroes are the ones that help us avoid things that we never see. You know, Y2K was a fizzle. Was it a fizzle because it was never real, or was it because we, we many unsung heroes worked hard to make it um, fizzle, make it not impactful? So there, there, and there's probably hundreds of other things where a disaster is averted because somebody was working behind the scenes and anticipating all the possible ways things can go right and wrong. Yeah, I, I love that idea. I mean, we it's the unsung hero is truly the right way to describe it because there's so much emphasis focused on the people who created rather than prevented a loss. Um, and I think it's important that we keep that focus that there's still equal importance to have people like that around. Um, I'm going to hand it back over to Chaz, but this is this is awesome. I appreciate it. George, before we come to a close here, uh, any last thoughts, uh, shameless plugs uh, for, to share with our listeners? Uh, this whole this whole episode has been pretty shameless. Uh, thank thank you for providing uh, the the uh, the coaxing and the nudging. Um, I, I I dare not. Uh, I, I'd prefer to put in a last plug for humility. Uh, be uh, don't let humility stop you from dreaming and, and achieving those dreams. Just you know, listen to people, talk to people. Uh, don't assume you're the smartest person in the room. Um, um, there's a lot of collective intelligence and collective uh, safety and ethics that, that really requires broad conversation. That would be my parting shot. Fantastic, and thank you. Um, for our listeners that are just eager to learn more, how can they find out more about your work? Uh, our website's a very rich website. I, I actually maintain a fair number of the pages myself, so there's a that bespoke artisan. Uh, uh, so it's arep.med.harvard.edu. Fantastic. Thank you, George, for an absolutely amazing episode. I'm sure our listeners will be craving for more. We're very grateful for your time. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.